The following sermon was delivered in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. All right, well, we're going to actually get to our passage in a second, but let's hold off for just a second um, because I wanted to just spend a brief intro here talking about the concept of leadership before we look at our passage. Um, So I'm going to start with a little exercise. Uh, So uh, raise your hand if you're a leader. Okay. Well, this is actually, so it's interesting because this is a hard question for people to answer because, uh, so leadership as a concept is very sophisticated. Um, In fact, in the English language, though we see appearances of the word leader and leadership as early as the 1300s, um, the word isn't described, uh, used to describe things like political influence and, and, uh, and other things like that, like that we're more used to, until the 19th century, that late. And um, in some modern languages, the leadership idea was even later than that. And so uh, for that reason, uh, it's, it's, it's a sophisticated kind of thing. We're, we're not sure how to handle it. And one of the reasons for this is that the concept of leadership uh, it's mostly in history been tied to positional authority. Okay, and so actually the words to describe leadership before were things like kings, princes, rulers, heads of state, this type of title that had to do with positional authority. And, um, and so it, even though that perpetuates really a poor view of leadership, it's something that has... Uh, that has gone forward. And so when we think about leadership, it's hard for us not to intrinsically take on some of these concepts. And so, um, so in many cases, when you study leadership academically, because it's new and sophisticated, one of the first things you do is you try to um, define it. All right, so I did this some years ago. So here, here was mine. I wrote this a while ago. So I said, it's the influence of others powered by self-sacrificing demonstration that promotes actions that support a collectively shared vision. All right, that's me. Okay, well, so I chose to share this next fact, though, uh, to illustrate that my definition clearly doesn't solve the complexity of the sophistication because uh, the problem is uh, there are almost as many different definitions of leadership as there are persons who have attempted to define the concept. (laughs) And that really is true. So... um, so, so when you all out there, most of you, I noticed, didn't raise your hand when I asked the question. And I, I think that um, one of the problems with asking a question like that is that you, we didn't have a, a common definition of leadership. We didn't have a common conceptual framework. And so because of your views of leadership, maybe as it's tied to positional authority or maybe your views about intrinsic things, a lot of people think, well, to be a leader, you have to be extroverted. You can't be shy, right? And, and maybe you don't really believe that in your head, but there's something about these traits that you think leaders have that cause you not to raise your hand or your concept of who leaders are in terms of position. Okay, so we're not going to sort out all that this morning because um, that's a lot. Um, but instead, we're going to look at a, we're going to look together at a passage and I think that what we can get on the same page about is that we're going to look at Jesus as a leader, and we're going to see that he that we we know he is the greatest leader to ever walk the face of the earth. And so we have these passages where he demonstrates his leadership, 
and we can learn so much more from this than we could from any other study. So we're going to look at that. So turn with me, if you would, to uh, Matthew 20, 17 through 34. Okay, and I'm going to start in verse 17. Matthew 20, verse 17. And it says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So there is a ton that we could get out of even just this passage, let alone all of Jesus' ministry about leadership, but I just picked three things this morning that I thought that we would talk about. Uh, and, and the first one is this. Servant leaders are clear about their vision and direction, and they prioritize the things that matter. So let's look back at this. So notice in verses uh, 17 through 19, uh, we just read, this is actually the third time that Jesus has clearly delineated to his disciples what's going to happen. Um, and so it's, this is kind of a consistent message that he's been giving at them. Turn back just a few chapters. I'll give you a second to do that. To look at Matthew 16, verses tw- verse 21. We actually just read this this morning. But notice, uh, I, I'm not going to read it again. I'll look at another passage in a second. I just kind of want to walk you through these instances. Notice that Peter makes this declaration about who Christ is. He first of all tells them, now don't tell anybody else. Okay, and I'll talk about maybe a little bit of reasons why that in a second. But then the second thing he does is immediately following this declaration about the keys to the kingdom and all this powerful stuff, he says, Oh, and by the way, I'm going and I'm going to be crucified. He gives them this news of what his mission is, of what his priorities are. And so we, we see then, following this, we see then these two kind of awe-inspiring, amazing events. The transfiguration in chapter 17 at the beginning, and then this healing of this demon-possessed boy. Um, and then we get to Matthew 17, 22 through 23. I'm going to read that. 
So Matthew 22, uh, 17, 22, it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Um, and then it's interesting if you look on, again, I'm not going to read this, but what, again, so he gives this clear vision, this clear vision of what's going to happen to him. But then we look at what the disciples seem to be interested in and what the people around him are talking about. Um, well, if we look at the end of chapter 17, uh, you could go ahead and look. I'm not going to read it. What are they talking about there? Just look. You don't have to shout it out, but look for a second. They're talking about taxes. <laughs> okay? And then, in chapter 18, they get into an argument over who's the greatest among them. So these are the priorities of the people around Jesus. But yet he keeps clearly giving his vision and his priorities to them. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to serve. Right? This is what's happening. I have a clear vision, clear priorities. And yet they're arguing about these, uh, these really trivial things. Um, and so Jesus makes his priorities clear. Notice after they're arguing about who's the greatest, what does he talk about? He talks about humility. Later in the passage, he talks about temptation, sin, and forgiveness, the things that matter. So you contrast this, the people around Jesus, they're talking about taxes and who's the greatest. He's talking about his mission. He's talking about temptation, sin, and forgiveness, these things that really matter in life. So Jesus makes his vision and priorities clear. So um, let's see here. So, sorry, I forgot I had all these slides. <laughs> Application. So, so my question is, do you? Do we do this? Do you have priorities that govern your decisions? It's my first application. Uh, we're all oversubscribed. Everyone in here, now you'd probably raise your hand to that if I asked who in here is oversubscribed. More, more things to do than you have time to do them. <laughs> Right? I'd probably get a lot more hands that go up. And so the question, the question is, is how do you choose what to engage and participate in and what not to? Well, have you, have you made your priorities and vision clear to make those decisions? And so, and, and the second thing is, are these uh, priorities clearly spelled out to those around you? So I do have a Father's Day application here too. Uh, do have you expressed your priorities to your children? And do you explain your decision in light of those priorities? Is it mysterious to your kids why you say yes to some things and no to others? Why you choose to participate in one activity and not another? Right? So it's important, if we're going to follow Jesus as servant leaders, it's important for us to clearly spell out uh, our priorities and our vision so that our kids understand this. Um, one reason I think we don't do this, at least for me, okay, so this is confession time for Ryan. <laughs> one reason I don't do it a lot is because sometimes I know my priorities aren't what they should be, that they don't line up with Jesus's priorities. You know, I never have a problem sharing with my family and my kids clearly what my priorities are when they line up with Jesus's. <laughs> I just don't want to share them with them when they don't. <laughs> So I think there's first step there is we have to get our priorities in line with Jesus because those are priorities that we don't have to be ashamed about. And then we clearly state them. People should know it. People, your children should know it. If, if you don't have children, those who you work with should know it. If you're in school, those who you go to school with that are your friends, they should know it. They should know what your priorities are. Are you clearly expressing those? 
So I would challenge you this morning, consider making them clear. Uh, maybe even writing them down. Some people really have to, they go, okay, I'm going to make them clear. But have you ever actually thought about writing down what your priorities and your vision for your life is? So that you can, you can monitor when you're making decisions, do they match? Am I, am I making this decision this way? Should my, should my family participate in this activity or this activity? Right? How do I pick? Well, if you have something guiding your principles, then it's going to be a lot easier to pick. And so, so Jesus does that with his disciples all the time. He gives his priorities. He makes them clear. He makes his uh, vision clear so that when he makes decisions, it's easy for him to explain, this is why I'm doing this. Okay, so that's the first thing. Servant leaders are clear about their vision and direction. They prioritize the things that matter. Number two, uh, servant leaders value acts of service over positional authority. So think about back in this passage in Matthew 16 again. Peter makes this proclamation. Jesus tells his disciples, well, now don't tell anyone. I think one of the big reasons he told them not to tell anyone is because notice just in a couple sections later, they're arguing about who's the greatest. He's, he's telling them this because he knows our temptation and their temptation to be obsessed with positional authority. He just told Peter he's going to give him the keys to the kingdom, right? Peter's got to be feeling pretty good about this, right? And in fact, then Peter's feeling so good that when Christ says, I got to go to the cross, Peter says, never. I would never let that happen, right? <laughs> so, so one thing is that Jesus expresses this consistently that he, he prioritizes uh, service over positional authority. Um, so, so we see this here in the, in the passage with uh, Peter. So we have this contrast between the keys of the kingdom, this power, this positional authority that is going to be held, right? And is, is a real thing in heaven, right? Versus the persecution and pain that's to come for not only Christ, but for his followers. Um, we, we think about this in Philippians 2, right? When Paul says, what did Jesus do with his positional authority? He let it go. He let it go. And so he exchanged that for, for the humility that came with being a bondservant. He prioritized um, his service over his positional authority. And then, of course, we see it in this passage here. If you turn back, Let's turn back to our text here, if you're not back already. Matthew 20. We have this request. Can my sons, and in a, a parallel patch, passages, we see this isn't just the mother asking. James and John, they want this too. They're there. And they're saying, yes, this is what we want. Sit at my right and left hand in glory. And what does Jesus bring it back to? He, said, he talks about, well, I'm going to contrast that with drinking this cup. And the cup he's referring to is what he just talked about before when he gave his thing. He said, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be killed. Do you, do you not understand what you're asking? What are you asking? You're, I'm going to be killed. Is that what you want? Are you able to do that? All right, so he's contrasting this, this thing they want, sitting at the right and left hand with the Father, and he's saying, you're focused on the wrong thing. You should be more focused on your act of service than on your positional authority what it means. And then we see it again when he contrasts the rule of Gentile princes. Uh, I don't know if that's actually the word they use here, but it, that's the common word they use, the Gentile princes or the rulers. Again, it goes back to that, that definition of leadership thing, that concept. This is the Roman concept of leadership. It has to do with positional authority. 
So, so it's given a title. So he contrasts the Gentile princes. He doesn't say leaders, right? Because there's, that concept doesn't really even exist. It's the, it's the positional authority versus the position of a slave. That's what a servant leader looks like, is actually in the position of the slave over the positional authority of the leader. So we see that contrast. So it, this view of leadership, it de-emphasizes positional authority. And it, this is so countercultural. Realize, it wasn't just countercultural then in the Roman Empire. I, it's, I, I don't really, I really doubt that we recognize the depth that this positional authority concept on leadership has on our culture today and on everybody here. How much it's permeated our thinking. Again, going back, who raised their hand? What were you thinking, right? What, what concept of leadership was, was on your mind? It's penetrated it. Um, so I had a little fun with this, actually, so I'm going to take a little break from my seriousness, mostly, and I'm, I'm going to do a little business plan comparison. Okay. <laughs> so I couldn't resist. This is an MBA exercise. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to look at comparing the Roman Empire, that's this big monopoly, versus this little startup. I called them fishers of men. Okay, this is, in, this is Jesus' ministry, Jesus' business plan as he came up. Okay, so the first thing we look at with our business plan, I'm not going to look at every element, but I'm going to look at, we, we start with the organizational objectives. Okay, with a good business plan, you want to start with your organizational objectives and your mission. So, uh, Roman Empire, it's world domination, right? And of course, with, with the fishers of men, it's about world redemption. Okay, all right. How about uh, values? Think about what's valued in the Roman Empire. Uh, power, wealth, right? All, again, tied to this positional authority aspect. And of course, in Fisher's Men, it's truth, love, and peace. These values that govern. Okay, here's one of my favorites. The HR recruiting strategy. <laughs> okay, how do we get our people? Well, for the Romans, it's about Genetics right? Part of it. Who, who are you born to? What's your family? Right? There's this position there. And then there's also an element of talent. And then my favorite, good business tactic, coercion, right? If you don't do this, we will kill you, right? Works pretty well, actually, for some models. Uh, Jesus's HR strategy. I had trouble with this one. Basically, my summation of it when I thought about it was pick the 12 least qualified individuals you could possibly think of and tell them to follow you. <laughs> okay, so that, that, was, uh, that, that, that was that. Okay, let's look at p- competitive advantage. What was the Roman Empire's competitive advantage? Structure, size, efficiency. Right? They had it all together. They had a system, right? and they rely on their system. The fishers of men, their competitive advantage, though, went beyond that. It's, again, so countercultural. It was about love, humility, and a willingness to serve. Leadership style, of course, going back to this. So, of course, this is kind of me hitting my point here. The leadership style of the Roman Empire was about positional, authoritative leadership. And the fishers of men, it was about servant leadership. But let me give you some encouragement this morning. And I'm hoping to get an amen from this. I'm just telling you in advance. (laughs) Only one of these organizations has lasted over 2,000 years. Amen? (laughs) Amen. And uh, I don't know know exactly who said this, so I'm stealing it anyway without giving credit. 
but I really like this. The leaders of the ragtag group of disciples, this ragtag group, the leaders of this group, uh, they have names like Peter, Mary, this kind of thing. And we name our children after those people. Those are our children's names now, a lot, a lot of times. And the leaders of the Roman Empire, right, this big behemoth, they have names like Nero, Caesar. We name our dogs and pets after those leaders. <laughs> right? So, so I think that uh, Christ, who is the inventor of the servant leadership leadership model, the countercultural model that says it's about acts of service versus positional authority, I think it's done pretty well, right? And so, so, so I think it's great encouragement. And yet, and yet, here's, here's one of the problems. Our current views of leadership as a society and maybe even in the church and our obsession with positional authority remain much the same as the priorities of the Roman Empire. We still think of leadership in terms of positional authority and we don't think of leadership the way Christ demonstrated and told, it, told, told us it was. So servant leaders value acts of service over positional authority. One more thing here. Um, one more thing is if we look at Jesus with the blind man, the blind man, excuse me, notice what he does here. The, the disciples are telling, all the people around Jesus, they're telling these men to be quiet. These men are calling out for Jesus and they're telling them, to be quiet. Why do you think they're telling him to be quiet? Well, I think one, one thing you could guess in the culture, do you think these blind men had any positional authority to call on Jesus and ask for anything? No, absolutely not. And so because of the culture, they're telling them, hey, you be quiet. You leave him alone. You don't have any position to be calling out and asking Jesus for something. And yet Jesus demonstrates what he's just told them in the passage before. He's just told them that if you're to be great in the kingdom, you're to be a servant of all. And here's an illustration. Here's two blind men. You're telling them to be quiet. I'm going to bring them over here. I'm going to ask them what they need. I'm going to meet their need. I'm going to heal them today. Right? So, so he shows them with his acts of service that, that, that this service is more important than the position Okay, so to the application. So first of all, fathers, this Father's Day. Again, going back to the Father's Day application. Do you view your positional authority as something, as this passage says, that you lord over your children? Or do you follow Colossians three eighteen through 21? Let's look at that. So turn with me to Colossians. So Colossians three 18, I'm going to read this. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Um, So one thing as a father and as a husband that's the hardest thing about this passage to me is notice, notice in it that wives are given a command but then right after the husbands are given a command and then the children are given a command and then right after the fathers are given a command. So, so it, th- there's this responsibility on us as fathers and husbands that's pretty heavy with, with both things. But notice what it doesn't say. It does not say that it's the fathers. It does not command fathers. Fathers, it doesn't say children obey your parents and fathers make sure using any tactic necessary they do. 
Notice it doesn't say that. In fact, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So while children have a responsibility to their parents to obey, that's clear. The responsibility towards the fathers is not to lord over their authority in the home over their children. Same way with wives. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. But notice it doesn't say, and husbands, keep those wives in line. Right? It doesn't say this, but sometimes I think we model our, uh, I think we model leadership in the home based on positional authority, not on service. And if we model it on positional authority, then we feel a responsibility as men and husbands to keep that position and keep those, that positional structure intact. But instead, what does it say? It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The commands are about service, not about authority. So my first thing for, 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 uh, for fathers is do, don't, don't lord your authority over your children. Second thing is, uh, it, just in general, men, do we, do we as men in a culture that has marginalized women for thousands of years, which is just true, our culture has marginalized women for thousands of years. Do we take for granted and embrace our positional authority? Or do we actually work to give up our power in service of others? We have positional power. Our society, as broken as it is, has given that to us. Do we work to use it in service? Or do we use it to advance our own self-interest? We have to, we, we have to think about that. And for anybody, so for all of us, um, to those of you who don't view yourself as leaders, I challenge you to, to challenge yourself with Christ's model of leadership. Did you not view yourself as a leader because of your lack of positional authority? If you're young in here, we have our kids in here with today. If you're 10, do you not view yourself as a leader because you're 10 and you don't have any title? That's not what Christ seems to say about leadership. He seems to say, he says about leadership that it's about service, not about positional authority. So challenge yourself about, about God and Christ's view of leadership. We could go the other way. Some of us may know this. Are we not raising our hands because we're unwilling to serve like Jesus commands? A lot of us don't want to be leaders because it's, it's a lot of work sometimes. Right? You think about, oh, if I want to be a leader, I'd have to do that. Hey, I don't know that I could do that, so I'm just not going to raise my hand. If, I just won't be a leader. I'm, I'm going to be a follower. <laughs> right? Okay, now followers actually tend to be really good leaders too, by the way, but that's another sermon for another day. <laughs> All right, so servant leaders, they value acts of service over positional authority. Okay, final point, p- point number three. Servant leaders want to hear what people need from them. Servant leaders actually want to hear what people need from them. Look at um, verses 20 through 21. What's it say there? What's, uh, what's it say? So the mother of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, kneeling before him. She, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? So notice when she came, he, he asked her what she wanted. He wanted to hear. And then we see this again. Look at verse 32. Verse 32, they, these blind men cried out to him, and he stopped, and he said, what do you want me to do for you? 
So as a servant leader, he actually wanted to hear. Notice that it doesn't mean he always said yes. Notice in this case, one time he said no. He said, that's not mine to give. I can't do that. You can't sit at my right hand and left hand. That's not mine to give. So he wanted to hear from them even though his answer was no. And so another time though, of course, he says yes. He says, what, what do you want me to do for you? They want to be healed. They want to see. He says, I can do that. I can do that so I'm going to serve you. That's something I can deliver. So realize that wanting, wanting to hear from people as a, uh, as a leader, that's, that's the appropriate response. You want to hear what people need from you. It does not mean that you're going to be able to deliver on every single one of the desires of the pe- of, that people ask you to do. Right? But, but, we, uh, but we're, supposed to, we're supposed to listen. So, of course, here's the um, applications here. Uh, for fathers, are you open to your children expressing their needs to you? Um, I might get emotional here because this is my worst one. <laughs> my absolute worst one. Um, when my kids want something from me, they're here, so they'll, they'll say this is true. When my kids come to me and I even see something in their eye that they're going to ask me for something, what's my response? I do, I kind of do what Jesus did. I do ask them, what do you want? <laughs> but there's a tone. <laughs> right? There's a big difference between, oh, what do you need me to do for you? And, oh, what do you want? What do you want? I just sat down. What do you want? We don't get that reaction from Jesus here. I, I, I just need to get to Jerusalem. I'm going to go die on a cross, for goodness sakes, and you're going to stop me on the side of the road? What do you want? I'm busy. I don't have time to be stopping and healing everybody who wants to be healed. <laughs> and if I heal you, it won't be enough. You'll just come back. You won't be healed again. You'll get hurt again. <laughs> it's, you're insatiable. Jesus doesn't do that. He asks, what do you want me to do for you? And he actually evaluates their request with the mindset that if he can meet the need, he will. Is that how, so is that, is that what we're doing, right? Are we actually desiring that people express their needs to us, our children? Are we desiring that they express what they want, or do we fear them expressing it because it's just going to frustrate us because we don't want to do it? Right. Now again, it's okay to say no if it's something we can't deliver. Right? But we actually want to hear the needs. Um, so for, for everybody, um, for everybody before I even get to this one, that's true for all of us. When people come to us, we know people that are going to ask us for things. Are we, are we open and willing to hear what they need? Even if it means telling them, no, you know, I can't do that. But I do want to hear, and if it's something that I can, if it's a need I can meet, I'll meet it. Is that a, that's the attitude of a servant leader. Okay, the other thing about this that I think is, uh, is tied in here is this has a lot to do, too, with how open to criticism we are. You know, when people criticize you, it's really hard to take it this way, and I'm not t- saying for you all to go out and get critical of each other. That's not what I'm saying. But when people criticize you in your families or wherever, 
um, really it's, it's a method for them to tell you what they need from you. They're actually telling you what they need from you. You're just hearing it as criticism and you're going to get self-defensive. And it's funny because if you look at it this in different settings, so this is what's true for me. If someone criticizes me and my family, I'm immediately defensive. Immediately on the defensive. I'm not hearing it. Oh, you just think that. uh, I'm making up excuses. What's interesting is if you think about criticism from a leadership standpoint, that's not how, that's not, it's totally opposite of how I would deal with it, say, at work. If someone comes in with a criticism at work, I can hear those criticisms as, okay, let me hear what they're expressing, what their expressed need is through this. What is it that they're asking of me? What is it that I have failed to deliver that they are feeling is my responsibility to deliver to them? And I can hear that, and I'm separated emotionally because my identity is not tied up in what those people think of me. Whereas with family and with home, it's a little harder, right? Because we get really tied up in what, what people think. And so it's because of this equation. You knew you have a math person talking to you this morning. You knew you were not going to get through this whole thing without one equation at least. So here it is. <laughs> here it is. Self-worth, this is the problem with most of us, for me and for probably most of us here, is that too often our self-worth is a function of our personal performance, how well we'll do, we're doing, and people's opinion of us. So if I'm doing a good job, and I feel like I'm doing a good job, my self-assessment is, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, and other people seem to think I'm doing pretty good too, then I have a high self-worth. And so then when people, when I start to see my own failures or other people start to criticize me, then you, you feel your self-worth start to suffer. That's, 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 the, that's the problem equation. And so we want to change that equation. What the Bible teaches is that our self-worth is to be about Christ's performance not about what we've done, but, what about, but about what he's done. And that instead of other people's opinions, we want to think about God's opinion. And the freedom that lies in this is that what's God's opinion of you? Is it good or bad? Good. Really good. Way better than you deserve because of the performance of Christ. And what's Christ's performance like? Perfect. So we have nothing to be ashamed of. Right? We can't be ashamed of Christ's performance or God's opinion of us. And so if we're grounded in that, then we can actually be open to hearing what other people want from us through their criticism and responding not in a, not in a collapse of our own self-worth, but with the mindset of a servant leader with the mindset of a servant leader who hears what people need and then assesses, can I meet that need? So, so that's the kind of uh, challenge to you there. So are you, are you open enough to your own shortcomings to allow others to tell you what they need from you? It's really difficult. C.S. Lewis um, has this quote, um, and I'm going to get it wrong because I didn't write it down here, but I'm going to try it anyway. I'm winging it. Frank taught me how to wing it a little bit, so <laughs> he wings it a lot. Uh, so uh, C.S. C.S. Lewis has this great uh, quote, though. He says, um, "We come to the end of our lives, and uh, each of us has." He says, "Each of us has these faults that are just 
I mean, they're just killers. They're, they're just plaguing. They affect every relationship in our lives. They permeate. We have these, these horrible personal shortcomings that cause all these problems through our whole lives. And at the end of our lives, if we're lucky enough, maybe we see some of them and we realize, this is what he said, we realize, whoa, that problem, that shortcoming, that sin issue, that I, I've been blind to it all these years and it's caused just all these problems for my whole life. I, this is unbelievable. How did this happen? And so they go to their friends, their closest friends and family, and they say, I don't understand it. I've had this issue my whole life. I've had this issue my whole life, and it could have saved me all sorts of problems if I would have been aware of it. Why didn't you tell me? And of course, every single friend, every single family member that's been known them for a long time says, oh, we did. We told you every day. <laughs> you just didn't see it. You weren't open to your own shortcomings enough to actually hear that that's people expressing their needs of what they need from you, that you're not delivering. So, so if we can shift, if we can shift that equation um, as it just went off, oh, there we go. Um, if we can shift that e- equation, we can become more uh, servant leaders. Okay, so let's try our exercise again. And I know I went super fast. <laughs> That's what I usually do. Let's try our exercise again. I'm going to change my question a little now that we have a little more common definition. So uh, raise your hand if Christ wants you to be a servant leader. That's right. Okay. Thank you. So, so and, and, and even if I ask the question, I won't again because you, maybe you have to process this, but even if I ask you, I would hope that everybody would leave here today, everyone, no matter what your age, no matter what your position, your title, or where you're at, that if I ask, are you a leader today? that you would answer yes because it's not tied to your positional authority. It's tied to how you act as a servant. All right, let's, let, let me pray for you and then we'll sing. So, God, I pray that you would just, uh, um, I, first, before I even do that, God, I want to thank you for the person of Christ. What a, what a magnificent example. I thank you that we have an example of a leader that was so exemplary that we still can't even uh, begin to, to um, unpack the leadership lessons that he taught us through his action and service while he was here. God, we have books and books and books written about leadership, and yet we have someone who transcended all of those with a model that's, that's, that's so far above anything that anybody's even studied. And we thank you for that, that we have that. And we pray that we would just utilize your spirit to, to become more and more like him, that we could lead like Jesus, not in positions of positional authority, but rather as servants, that we would listen to each other's needs and that we would evaluate if we could meet those needs and that we would seek to meet them, that we'd make our vision and priorities for our lives clear and that our actions would follow those, uh, the, that vision and priorities, God. And that we wouldn't fall into the trap of this world. The world system wants us to believe that leadership is about position, about authority, about who we are and about what we're doing that makes us powerful. But God, your message is clear through the work of your son that, that leadership is about service. It's about humility and about giving rather than receiving and becoming powerful. 
I pray that that would just impact our thinking and everything that we do in our families, with our friends, and with those around us. We pray for your grace that, uh, that you would pour it out on us so abundantly that it, would, um, that it would affect our mindset about our position, that we would see ourselves and put our self-worth not in our own actions or other people's opinions of us, but that we would put our self-worth in the actions of what your son has done for us and what you believe to be true about us and your love for us. Just pray all these things in your name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.